Welcome to CII Radio. In this episode, we're talking to David Johnson. In this episode of the podcast, we're talking about the Civil Liability Act and we're joined by David Johnson, partner at DAC Beechcroft. The Civil Liability Act came into force in December 2018, but only part of it came straight into force, with other parts of the reform still to be finalised. So there's still much we don't know about how the Act and related reforms will be implemented. The Act covers several areas, including the discount rate, whiplash reforms and cost savings. To find out more about the podcast and for useful links, go to thejournal.co.uk UK forward slash podcasts. Here's our conversation with David. Hello, David, and uh, welcome to CII Radio. Thank you, Luke. Excellent. Very pleased to have you with us today. So to start off quite generally, could you give us a little bit of background about the Civil Liability Act uh, and why it was put into place? Okay, yes. So the Civil Liability Act is essentially an act of two parts. The first part centres around the introductions of, of a damages tariff in relation to whiplash claims. The purpose of that tariff is to put a cap on the financial value of those claims with the intent of both reducing the incentive incentive to uh, bring such claims and then to minimise the costs involved in dealing with those claims okay. where they are made. The second part of the Act is then aimed at dealing with um, a discrete issue, namely the discount rate. Uh, the discount rate is a factor that plays an inherent part in the calculation of higher uh, of damages in higher value claims, uh, where those claims involve an element of future loss. And the Act uh, seeks to introduce a new method for the calculation of the discount rate. Uh, which is intended to address the current imbalance that has resulted from the old and rather outdated method of calculation. So uh, dealing first with the whiplash uh, provisions uh, and answering the question of sort of where those uh, provisions came from, for that you really have to go right back to 1990 and the, um, the the civil litigation reforms brought about by Lord Wolfe. One of the underlying drivers behind those reforms was the need to do away with legal aid funding from the state in relation to personal injury claims. Okay. At the same time, the government and the judiciary uh, were very keen to preserve access to justice, which is a phrase that we're all familiar with. Um, but what it really means is ensuring that injured litigants were not prevented from being able to obtain compensation without legal aid if they couldn't afford legal representation. So the mechanism that Lord Wolf came up with to avoid that was conditional fee agreements, CFAs, right. or what most people commonly know as no-win-no-fee arrangements. Those arrangements were effective in preserving access to justice. Uh, they did allow injured litigants to get legal representation without, uh, e even if they weren't particularly well off. Um, but what it did do, the introduction of CFAs, was to significantly increase the legal costs involved in pursuing a personal injury claim, which led to uh, claimant representatives being able to derive a, a lot more profit from individual personal injury claims. Right. And because of claims becoming more profitable, that created, or, or a whole market then grew up around personal injury claims and the services associated with them, and essentially turned 
personal injury claims into a sort of tradable commodity. Subsequently, there's been a whole raft of attempts at putting the cat back in the bag in that respect, so right. to speak. And some of them have had a degree of success, but they've never really fully resolved the problem of what most people acknowledge is a claims culture in the UK. Yes, yeah. And part one of the Civil Liability Act is the latest and by far the most far-reaching um, attempt to ad address that problem. So um, looking at what it actually attempts to do, that's relatively straightforward. Uh, it introduces a tariff in respect of whiplash cases and, and the damages that the injured litigants get in respect of whiplash uh, currencies. And that puts a cap on the value of those uh, claims at, at that lower level. The intention is that with the claims having a lower value, uh, people will be less inclined to bring claims in the first place, which is hoped will serve to reduce claims numbers. Uh, and then beyond that, um, because there's an inherent link between the level of damages and the level of claimant representative fees, uh, by limiting damages in whiplash cases, you also limit how much the claimant representatives get and therefore uh, the, the amount of profit to be derived from these claims. So it's really seeking to address uh, that sort of commoditization of claims that goes all the way back to 99. Right. So the, 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 the hope is that with less profit being derived from these type of claims, we'll see an end to the sort of cold calling and other activities uh, that have been engaged in with a view to encouraging people to make these claims. Mm. Um, and underlying all of that, um, there is a, a hope that um, that will then serve to bring down the cost of insurance premiums, in particular motor insurance premiums in the UK, um, because obviously there is an inherent link between how much insurers and other compensators pay out for claims and what they then charge to insurance customers um, by way of insurance premiums. Absolutely. So in terms of when the whiplash provisions come into force, uh, D-Day, so to speak, is the 1st of April 2020. Okay. Um, that, that deadline is down to the need to ensure that there's an online platform available um, to deal with such claims um, and that that platform is suitable for people who may be choose to pursue their claims without legal representation. That platform's in the process of being built and the target, target date for implementation is currently 1st of April 2020, as I've said. Um, is that a realistic target, in, in your opinion? I think at the moment it, it, it does remain a realistic target. Um, it, it, the answer to that is all tied up in the building of this, this um, claims portal and whether right. we actually, you know, that's ready in time. That's the key question. At the moment... The, there are stakeholder consultations going on. Um, I believe the MIB is the organisation that's been tasked with building the, the portal. And I think that's a, a, an ongoing activity. So there is, I think things are moving forward. Um, I think there are some creases to be ironed out. Uh, and uh, the recent consultation in relation to the expansion of, or possible expansion of Medco is all tied in with that. So I think there are, th th there's still some bridges to cross. I think, I think in a nutshell, April 2020 is still uh, a realistic target, but government needs to uh, 
get its skates on and make sure that this is delivered in time it's due to be tested in october and yeah. i think at that point we'll get a more realistic uh, measure of whether the whiplash tariff reforms is are, are going to land first uh, of april next year Okay. Um, so on, on the subject of claims then, um, what are the intentions to adjust the small claims track limit? Where does that fit into all of this? So the, the small claims track limit governs when you can or cannot recover legal representation costs in relation to claims. Mm. As a part of the underlying rationale behind um, the Act, government is also doing some other things, one of which is is looking to adjust the small claims track limit. The theory is if, if legal costs are not recoverable in as many claims, then again, the, the, cost, the overall cost of claims for the UK insurance industry will come down. Um, and as a consequence of that, insurance premiums will come down with it. So that's the purpose of the small claim, adjusting the small claims track limit. That was not dealt with in the Act because actually you don't need primary legislation to adjust the small claims track limit. So it's a separate piece of work or a separate initiative, but it is intended that the two... Uh, those two measures will be rolled out hand in hand on right. the 1st of April next year. So that's that's um, the, the sort of whiplash tariff side of things. Just turning then to the discount mm. rate in the second part of the Act. Yeah. Um, the discount rate is a more discreet issue, but one which certainly compares to uh, whiplash when it comes to the, the sort of cost consequence for the insurance industry. Um, for those that aren't aware of what the discount rate is, it's basically a mathematical factor that's used in the calculation of damages in claims where there's a degree of future loss. So to, to expand upon that, if you suffer an injury that's going to have financial implications for you in the future, for example, if you have a, uh, a spinal injury that renders you paralysed and therefore you're going to have to continue to pay out um, for the cost of care and equipment for the rest of your life, right. you will get damages, a pot of damages that is intended to last you until the day you die and cover all the costs that you incur in the meantime. Yeah. But it's recognised that there are certain factors that are going to impact on how much money you actually need. On the one hand, there's going to be a fl inflation around the, the costs you're concerned with. So today's prices may not necessarily be tomorrow's prices. Absolutely, yeah. But at the same time, it's also recognised that you will take the money given to you and you will invest it and you'll get a return on that investment. And therefore, you will generate some income in that respect, albeit that you'll have to deduct investment costs and taxation from that income. So the, the idea about the discount rate is you start off with a, a figure that covers all your costs for the, um, the rest of your life. And you apply the discount rate and some figures that are extracted, extrapolated from it to adjust that amount of money so that you end up with the right sum that uh, that leaves you fully compensated taking into account all of those other factors yes yeah. so that's a discount rate essentially the, the problem with the discount rate historically is that it was tied to ILGS index linked government stocks which was appropriate when the discount rate was first set in 2001 but which no longer really um, bears 
there's any resemblance to what you can hope to derive in terms of investment income on a, a, a sort of pot of money of the nature we're talking about. So um, as a result of that, when the former Lord Chancellor Liz Truss changed the uh, the discount rate in uh, on 17th of February 2017, there was this very significant swing from a discount rate of plus 2.5% to minus 0.75%. And that resulted in a a very substantial cost to compensators uh, in the millions, if not the billions. Philip Hammond, Lord Chancellor at the time, 2017, made provision in the budget that year uh, that was based on an average cost to the NHS alone of £1.3 billion wow. per annum okay. by, by reference to that new discount rate. So you can see that we're talking about some very significant figures. Mm. And what Part 2 of the Civil Liability Act seeks to do is to recognise that the, the old methodology for calculating discount rate is, is out of date and to roll out a new methodology that gives us um, a, a, a better discount rate that more accurately gets us to that 100% compensation whereby a claimant is left properly compensated but not overcompensated or undercompensated. And part two of the Act is 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 the sort of methodology by which um, it's felt that can now be achieved. We're we're, current, we're recording this podcast uh, May 2019, <laughs> and, and things uh, are progressing kind of all the time. Absolutely. Aren't they? <laughs> um, so at the time of, of recording, David Gould, the current Lord Chancellor, has announced a review of the discount rate. He has until the 5th of August to roll out uh, that new discount rate. I strongly suspect uh, that he will. Uh, roll out a new discount rate slightly earlier than that okay um but the viewers will have oh, sorry your listeners <laughs> even will have a much better idea because it's probably already happened by the time this podcast goes out <laughs> the burning question at the moment is is where it's going to be uh, be set and, uh, and and when it will be set so really nailing my colors to the mast <laughs> and leaving myself totally hostage to fate um at the time of recording may 2002 and uh, 19 I think we'll probably see it slightly earlier than than August and um, perhaps uh, July sometime and in terms of where it will be the the best indicators uh, seem to be somewhere between 0% and 1% it, 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 so we, we the the hope is that the the new provisions will see a rebalancing that gives a fairer deal to to all concerned yeah um, after the the new discount rate has been announced the requirement is that government will then revisit it um, at least once every five years. Right, okay. Um, And in circumstances where previously we had a big swing of the pendulum on the discount rate from that plus 2.5 to the uh, minus 0.75 percentage, uh, that was in part linked to the fact that it wasn't reviewed between 2001 and 2017. Wow, okay. So the hope is that by having more frequent and regular reviews of the discount rate um, once every, or, or not more than every five years. I should say that you you, you, you could have 
early reviews if there's a big change in investment income trends. Yeah. Um, but by having that uh, long stop of a review every five years, you will potentially and hopefully avoid that pendulum type effect. And where there is variation, hopefully it won't be as, as dramatic. And therefore, you may get uh, fluctuations in, in reserves and what have you, but they won't be quite as um, drastic uh, as as they were in 2017. We'll be yeah. on a more even keel, is the best way to put it, I think. Okay. So um, the discount rate provisions have the potential again to bring down UK indemnity spend from what it is at the moment, albeit in a very different way to the, the whiplash reforms. And then what the the civil, just to wrap up the sort of overview of the Civil uh, Liability Act, the final thing that it really provides for is a mechanism to uh, monitor how all those proposed reforms translate into premium prices, particularly motor premium prices, motor yeah. insurance premium prices going forward, and to ensure that the, 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 the sort of impact that all of this legislation is intending to have actually comes to fruition and delivers um, lower premiums or, or at least mitigates the increase in premiums for um, UK motor insurance customers um, in in the wider community. Okay, so ultimately, the um, it's hoped that this will will benefit um, customers um, at the end of uh, of this. Um, I mean, you mentioned there about that it is kind of an ongoing uh, situation that will be reviewed continually. I mean, um, how is the government going to to monitor motor premium prices? Um, and do you think that uh, that method of uh, of monitoring will be accurate? Uh, as time goes on. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the more challenging aspects of this for insurers. A lot of the provisions of the Act will undoubtedly benefit compensators. Uh, and and I, I think it, it, there's going to be a challenge uh, for the insurance industry to ensure that if that translates, if and when that translates to a saving um, for insurance purchasers out there that that is actually recognized um the the act contemplates government um monitoring premiums over the space of three years from the introduction of the reforms in april 20 through until april 2023 right and thereafter there's a year for the government actuaries department to report afterwards so we we this is going to come to fruition in April 2024. In terms of what they're going to look at, the the, the provisions of the Act uh, uh, talk about um, the ability to limit who the the government looks at um, to insurers that have written relevant policies over the entirety of that period, and also that have a significant proportion of the market, if you like. So yeah. I think the likelihood is that the the top end UK insurance uh, motor insurance sort of players will will be the ones who end up having to feed in uh, information to government as regards what that information is going to look like uh, th there's obviously a focus on what what the bodily injury uh, aspect of UK indemnity spend 
uh, has in terms of an impact on on premium uh, prices. Um, I don't know how readily available that information is going to be to insurers. I think yeah. they should be conscious that uh, the question is going to be coming on mm-hmm. that front, and that they need to really be quite assiduous in in managing their, their their management information, their MI, in order to be able to answer that question. I think separately, there's then going to be a bit of a PR exercise and a bit of an education exercise about making sure that the the MI that is put across to government is properly understood. Yeah. So in terms of um, what may in- impact on um, premium prices going forward it's a lot more than just um, damages outlay in relation to bodily injury claims Mm. to pick out a couple of things that are of particular note um, IPT tax so that's income premium tax we've seen that go up twice in recent years Um, and obviously that's a percentage hike um, that will invariably push up premiums Um, And then also there's the rising cost of vehicle repairs. Um, We're seeing ever more sophisticated vehicles on the road. Um, Great, some great developments around um, um, uh, sort of protection systems, airbags and what have you, and um, uh, autonomous sort of technology aimed at preventing accidents. But at the same time, all of that involves components that are quite expensive and we're seeing um, sort of bigger outlays when it comes to repairing vehicles Um, and those things will have an independent um, inflatory effect on premium prices so there's certainly a possibility that we'll see the a reduction in spend on personal injury claims which has a positive effect on premium prices but nevertheless other factors serve to result in premium prices still going up albeit by a lesser amount so that's going to be quite a complicated concept for government to get its head around and there may be an exercise in saying look Premium prices haven't actually gone down, but they have gone up at a lower rate than would otherwise be the case as a result of these reforms. Mm. So there's going to be some a need for some good education around, um, you know, what what the outcome of all of this is, and then beyond that, claimant representatives are not particularly enthusiastic around these these reforms um and and it may suit their agenda simply to take a more simplistic approach and say that they haven't delivered a reduction in premium prices if that proves to be you know the case and there will be a pr exercise in sort of taking these explanations to the wider public and making sure that they are not hoodwinked into thinking that these these reforms have made no savings when in fact they have yeah um, so I mean, yeah, it's certainly certainly a fairly complex issue as as, as time goes on, um, and the, as you say, there are many factors to consider. Um, um, in terms of the regulation, um, how about uh, claims management companies? Does um, does that form part of of these reforms as well, and um, the the regulation around them? Yes, yeah, certainly. I think I think the um, in, in pursuing its aim of bringing down insurance premiums through bringing down the cost of claims we we've got the the whiplash tariff and then we've got what we discussed earlier about the adjustment of the um, small claims track limit one of the anticipated outcomes of that is that you're probably going to see um, some of the historic um, providers of legal services for claimants moving out of the market essentially solicitors um, deciding that they no longer want to undertake this sort of work. 
Um, and part of the reason for having a, a decent claims portal or a, a, a new sort of revamped claims portal is to ensure that if that results in litigants in person becoming more prevalent so people bringing their own claims without representation they're still able to do that but one of the alternative sort of scenarios that I think everyone's conscious of is that if you see fewer claimant solicitors uh, in the market, you might see claims management companies or CMCs enter the market to sort of fill that void and start representing claimants uh, themselves. So in circumstances where there is a perception that claims management companies haven't always um, acted entirely uh, in the claimant's best interests as opposed to their own best interests, um, that they're properly regulated so that the problematic uh, element of claims management companies out there are taken away um, and not allowed to get away with poor practices and that what you're left with is um, the decent claims management companies um, who provide a good service so that if they do fill that void, the interests of, of claimants are, are properly protected. And we've seen the Financial Guidance and Claims Act come into effect now introducing a, a regulatory regime which hopefully will will deliver on that but we need to uh, monitor how that goes and ensure that um, uh, claims management companies are being held to account. Absolutely so earlier on you you did mention that I know there's the um, involved you know some estimation around this but um, and we're kind of looking into the future but you may suspect that the discount rate would fall uh, around the one naught to one percent bracket. Um, what is it that kind of leads you to 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 that kind of estimation? And um, and can you tell us a little bit more about the new method for calculation on the discount rate? Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, we, you say that we're looking into the future again. <laughs> well, we might not be. <laughs> By the time this podcast this goes out, this may be historic. Um, so to to explain how I've arrived at that naught to one percent bracket, um, which which. Uh, I may sound incredibly intelligent about um, or I may be sitting here with egg on my face by the time this comes out. But but the, that, that comes from really originally uh, David Liddington. Um, he was Lord Chancellor following Liz Truss in, uh, later in 2017. And on the 7th of September, he made an announcement saying that um, if the draft legislation, as it was at that point in time, were to come into effect, he anticipated that in, in broad brush terms, we'd probably end up in a discount rate in that bracket. Right. Um, uh, the, the legislation is subtly different to, to, to how it was in, in its draft form back then. Um, and also we've seen quite a lot of uh, water under the bridge. Um, but fundamentally, um, I, I, I think some of the sort of rationale behind the estimate still remains good. And in addition, we, we, we saw the Scottish legislation um, subsequently being rolled out. Um, and the estimation when that was rolled out, um, I think in uh, July 18, was still um, uh, w w was a 0% uh, discount rate. That's in relation to a subtly different methodology of calculating the discount rate in Scotland. Yeah. Um, but one which still bears compar comparison to what we've got um, as a result of the Civil Liability Act. So I think um, if we end up with a single rate, um, it's likely to be in that bracket yeah. um, on, on, on based on the information that we know at the current point in time. Um, and there is 
also um, the possibility of a dual discount rate. Um, can you kind of tell us briefly what, what that um, kind of entails and, and if that is a realistic possibility as well? Yes, that's, that's an interesting um, sort of concept. Um, the rationale for a dual rate is that you will vary your investment strategy according to when you need to spend your money. So, for example, if you're investing um, uh, a pot of money that you're going to need to spend on care or equipment or whatever over the next 10 years, um, so you're going to need to start drawing down from that investment pot almost immediately, um, you're going to need to take quite a conservative um, investment approach um, because you can't afford to to make any mistakes as it were whereas if you're investing a pot of money for expenses that probably won't be incurred until for another 10 20 years um, you can probably take a slightly different approach to your investment risk profile because if you have some short-term losses, you've got some time to recoup your investment. Yeah. So the rationale behind a dual rate is that you will have um, different uh, investment strategies for different pots of money, and thus you should have two different or, or multiple different discount rates to to reflect that. Um, is that a realistic? outcome um again when this podcast comes out we'll probably know the answer um i think i think that um there is a, a logic to that um there's it's not common in other jurisdictions but there are certainly um a number of other jurisdictions out there that do use a dual rate um i think politically um it, it has the merit of um, perhaps uh, allowing government to spread the dis or mitigate the dissatisfaction. You know, if you're putting out two rates, um, maybe one quite conservative and the other a little bit more liberal, then, then perhaps you balance uh, the extent of the criticism that you, you might get from, from either party or cohort. So um, I think I can see... That, um, that there is certainly the possibility of, of a, a dual rate um, announcement. And it has to be said that even if um, the, the current review of the discount rate doesn't generate um, a dual approach, um, that's something that may still follow uh, in the future. Okay. Um, so uh, many, if, if not all of our listeners will be insurers or obviously involved in the insurance profession. Um, is there, uh, are there any pitfalls that insurers should be aware of in all of this? Um, and is there anything that um, insurers need to do around future reviews um, of the discount rate? Yeah, I think, um, I think looking at the two halves of the act, I've already covered um, the sort of 2024 um, review of insurance premiums and, and, that is something that I think insurance need to be, insurers need to be conscious of um, and they should um, sort of be preparing for right from the word go really in, in terms of collating the appropriate information to be in a position to deal with that review cogently. Um, I think the, the, other, the other thing coming out of the Act that um, insurers need to be aware of is this sort of more regular review of the discount rate. Um, uh, fundamentally, the new method of calculation for the discount rate gives more flexibility 
um, to the Lord Chancellor. And that's quite logical because mm. the reason we've come unstuck, if you like, with um, uh, what, what's commonly perceived to be a discount rate that overcompensates claimants at the moment. The reason for us ending up in that situation is that you had a quite a rigid um, sort of methodology um, centred around ILGS um, and Liz Truss felt that she was bound by that um, which resulted in this rather sort of unpalatable outcome. So it's logical that the the Act has gone where it has and, and produced a more liberal um, or flexible mechanism for reviewing the discount rate. However, as a consequence of that, um, there's an awful lot of discretion in the Lord Chancellor's sort of... Um, uh, hands, and if we end up at some point in the future with a, a Lord Chancellor who is not pre very well predisposed towards the insurance industry, um, because there's that degree of flexibility there, and because it's essentially a political decision about where that rate is set, um, you could see um, uh, an, a rather unfavourable rate come to the fore. Mm. Um, there is a check on the Lord Chancellor, and that is in the the form of um, an expert panel that he's required, he or she is required to set up to advise him um, on the discount rate. Um, it, it, it's not not been done for the first review because that, that an exception was made in that regard. It will be required for future reviews. Uh, government obviously compiles the panel. Um, but it will certainly be open to the insurance industry and others to lobby uh, government about who should go on that panel. And I think quite a lot of power, if you like, will sit in that panel because I don't think a Lord Chancellor will be able to easily ignore the recommendations of that expert panel. So I think in terms of bring, bringing things back around to your question and what can the insurance industry, what should it be concerned with going forward? I think the composition of that expert panel, is, which will be set up every five years to or, or, or however frequently the discount rate is reviewed, um, a, a panel will be set up for each review. And I think the insurance industry needs to be assiduous in ensuring that the right people are put onto that panel yeah. so that you do get a fair outcome and, and one is and one that's um, um, as free from sort of uh, other political considerations as is, is possible. So I think um, those are the two things really, ensure that insurers are in a good position to give a cogent response to that monitoring of, of UK insurance premiums and, and make sure that uh, the discount rate expert panels are, are consistently comprised of the right people and give a fair um, uh, uh, advice to the Lord Chancellor around how they should he or she should uh, review the discount rate. Absolutely. Okay, well, thank you so much for, for joining us today, David. I, I realise it's a lot to cover, um, but you've really given us an excellent overview um, of the situation, and I know it is an ongoing one. Um, is there any way, uh, anywhere that you can direct our listeners to to perhaps find out more if, if they want to um, keep keep up, up to date with the situation? Um, well, yes, yeah, certainly DACB Beechcroft um, puts out... Uh, 
periodic updates um, and I would encourage uh, your listeners to keep an eye on our website in that regard um, uh-huh. they should feel free to contact me and, and obviously the CII also puts out some good material um, around what's going on so I think it's a case of uh, just watching the developments um, keeping you appraised of uh, what's on our respective websites and, and, and just making sure that uh, you're up to date with what's going on. Excellent. Well, um, David Johnson from uh, DAC Beechcraft, thank you so much for joining us today. Been fantastic. And uh, thank you all for listening also. To find out more, you can visit thejournal.cii.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at CII Group. Um, so until next time, thank you for listening to CII Radio and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>